Welcome to the Culture Shapers podcast with author, leadership expert, and co-founder of the Daniel Center of Leadership, Marcus Benjamin. At the Daniel Center, our vision is to develop and deploy godly leaders, and you fit that description. Here's Marcus for today's message. It is Monday and the day before our national presidential election. And quite honestly, I would much rather be preparing for my wedding anniversary, which is this coming Friday. My wife and I will be celebrating 16 years and we're excited about that. But there is a responsibility that I have. There is a sense of burden that I have because this is the Culture Shapers podcast and we have to be honest and we have to be true to that uh, podcast mantra that the things that affect culture, the things that speak to culture, the things that seek to change culture, we have to do our best to address them, to speak candidly toward them, to speak from a Christian vantage point toward them, and just let the chips fall where they may. So in this uh, Culture Shapers podcast, we actually titled this podcast, Actually Crazy, Potentially Criminal, and Conscience. (laughs) And I think you probably already see where uh, that falls. But within this podcast, I want to just share some things, some thoughts, some assertions that I think will be a benefit. Now, there is some dissatisfaction that's going to happen with this podcast. Everyone won't be pleased with what I'm going to say. Uh, Additionally, uh, this podcast isn't designed to foster division, uh, but maybe help with some potential blind spots that we may have. And let me make this very clear as well. I'm not inferring that all of this content is, quote unquote, the mind of the Lord. Now, I do believe that God has some influence in this. I do believe we can see some biblical consistency with some things that I'll communicate. But I'm not out here saying that the things in this podcast is all God. No, there's some things that are in this podcast. And probably the majority of this podcast is really just Marcus and his thoughts and so forth that I believe aren't contradictory to the word of God, but I'm not necessarily saying what I'm saying, God endorses it so that you can then go out and take that into the political uh, landscape. But no, we're at a crossroads in American culture. We're at a major cultural crossroad. I'm thinking about the election of 1860 with Abraham Lincoln and Stephen Douglas running for uh, president And America was at a major cultural crossroads during that time. And uh, Abraham Lincoln ultimately won the the presidency. And of course, we all know how that changed the course of uh, the American culture and American history. But there is tension and there is conflict. But I want to be very quick to say that although on the surface it may seem as if the tension and the conflict is between maybe black and white, old or young, rich or poor, per se, but really and truly, I don't think that's where the conflict really is. Although that's a part of it, that's the surface, but I think if we dig deeper and we go beyond the surface, that the tension is really over worldview. Now you probably weren't expecting that, but the tension is really over worldview. It's over philosophy. It's over methodology for life. So for some of you out there, you're saying, well, Marcus, what's the worldview? I haven't really heard that. And depending on which space you live in, you probably have never heard or used that term. 
But for those of us in the cultural landscape, we understand the word worldview is very important. Uh, worldview uh, comes from the German word, which literally means a lens, a perspective, uh, a philosophy. It literally means a person's approach to life, how they see the world, how they interpret and how they interact with the outside world. It's like when you put on a pair of shades, right? You go outside and you've got a tent to your shades. Everything is now tinted by the color of the tent on those shades. If the color is burgundy, then everything looks burgundy. If the color is blue, everything looks blue. I think you get the point. So your worldview, my worldview, it shapes how we interpret and how we interact with the outside world. And guess what, ladies and gentlemen? Everybody has a worldview. Everybody has a philosophy for life. Everybody has a fundamental premise a fundamental point of reference that determines how they interpret and how they interact with the outside world. Everybody has one, religious people and irreligious people or non-religious people. Doesn't matter, we all have a philosophy. Whether we're public servants, whether we're parents, whether we're coaches, doesn't matter who we are or what degree of influence we have, we all have a worldview. But make no mistake about it. You've got to understand that in the public space, there are two worldviews that are aggressively and have aggressively attached itself to the public conscience. Now, we can talk about several worldviews and we probably need to do another podcast just simply on worldviews. As a matter of fact, we will. We'll do another podcast specifically on worldviews. But today, the two most dominant worldviews that are affecting the public space are secularism and secular humanism. Secularism, excuse me, secularism uh, basically says in no way is religion or spirituality to be a part of public life. If one is to be spiritual or religious, then they are to not seek to influence public society with their personal uh, religious or spiritual values. That's basically what secularism says. It says everything that's spiritual or religious must be private, which privatism is another worldview. And you should not seek to influence public life with spiritual or religious values. That's the heart of secularism. Now, secular humanism basically states that the end of all things is humanity and its happiness. Man is the ultimate measure of reality. There is no need for belief in God. See, this is secular humanism. Secular humanism is, again, akin to secularism, but it just takes it a little bit further. It goes beyond simply saying that religion should have no place in public life. Secular humanism says religion, God, and spirituality is of no consequence. Is it sh there, is not, there should not even be a thought about a belief in God. As a matter of fact, you don't even need a belief in God. Now, here's why that's important. It's important because the vast majority of political theory of the late 20th and now the 21st century is shaped or has been shaped by these two worldviews. Oh, you've seen it as it relates to our classrooms and education, as it relates to business meetings, as it relates to sporting events. What? Let's get God out. Move the Ten Commandments. Move the Bible. Uh, don't. Don't call on the name of Jesus. Don't pray in the name of Jesus. Let's have moments of silence. Let's not speak about God. You know, the ACLU, uh, very overt about that and so forth. The point I'm endeavoring to make is that secularism and secular humanism 
have risen to be two of the most quote unquote pop culture or popular worldviews in the world. More specifically in America. It's true across the world, but it's true in America, which means that people who have spiritual values and virtues, people who have religious values and virtues, and even more specifically, people who have Christian values or virtues, it's a marginalization. It's a, a repressing. It's a suppressing. It is a ignoring. It is a no, get, get to the corners. No, no, go in your closet and do that. Don't come into the public space with spiritual ideas or religious ideas and so forth which is completely a slap in the face when we when you go to the National Mall. Just go to the, to the National Mall in Washington. And when you go there, you're going to find out that there are scriptures carved all over the buildings and all over the artifacts and the National Mall. Scriptures. But that's another conversation for another day if we're dealing with the duplicity of American history as well as how that duplicity actually paved the way for transformation in American culture. That's another conversation. The main thing I want you to understand is that secularism and secular humanism have nudged their way into the popular consciousness uh, in America through uh, political theory, through academic theory and social theory. And as a result, most people don't understand that we're in attention over worldviews because really and truly, if, if secular humanism is the worldview of choice, then we're going to constantly have black and white, old and young, rich and poor arguments and disagreements and contention and tension. As a matter of fact, the more secular humanism rises, the greater the tension will be because the root of secular humanism is survival of the fittest, which means I've got to win and you can't win. We both can't win at the same time. So I have to displace you, replace you. I have to eliminate you so that I can keep the top wrong. You see, that's a part of the essence of secular humanism. You say, well, Mark, hold on. You're talking about political theory. You're talking about secular humanism. I mean, where is this really going? Well, there's a big why. And the big why is this. If Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton, if they aren't qualified to be president of the United States, what basis do we use to make this claim? What basis do we really use to say Donald Trump is crazy? I mean, what basis do we really use to say Hillary Clinton is potentially criminal? I mean, what basis do we have to make that claim? Because neither secularism nor secular humanism, neither of them have objective standards of morality. Neither of them have objective standards of ethics from which human behavior can be ultimately determined as right, wrong, appropriate or inappropriate. So it's almost like we want to have a pop culture society of secular humanism, but then we also want to, at the same time, judge men and women based upon objective standards. But secularism and secular humanism cannot have objective standards because in order to have objective standards, there must be an entity outside of the secular. Listen, there must be a being outside of the secular that creates these objective standards for those of us who are in the secular to subscribe to, which basically means there must be a transcendent being. There must be a being that transcends the secular, transcends the natural, who establishes objective moral standards, objective standards of ethics for humans to then what judge or measure human endeavors by. But remember, secularism and secular humanism doesn't have those objective moral standards. Secularism and secular humanism doesn't have objective standards of ethics and so forth. 
So again, who are we basing or what are we basing the error of Donald Trump or the error of Hillary Clinton based upon in a secular society? We're appealing to a theistic perspective or a transcendent being that has what standards and objectives that that this being created, which we know to be God. We claim to be God and God himself uh, endorses that according to the book of Romans chapter one, that the, the creation declares the glory of God. The mere fact that we have li we live in an orderly world, a natural world that has predictable laws and predictable principles and so forth. These principles, laws and standards point to the. Uh, existence of a divine creator but again we'll have that conversation in our uh, worldview uh, talk uh, in the, the other uh, or the next or the upcoming podcast but I really want to just dig into that because you've got people who are saying Hillary Clinton is a criminal Hillary Clinton is a deceiver she's a liar you know her and her husband have made hundreds of millions of dollars over 35 40 years of public service how did they amass all of this money without having a quote-unquote job what about Benghazi what about the email scandal what about the more recent uh, DNC uh, work against uh, Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton getting questions to the uh, to the debates in advance and so forth. But again, upon whose basis are we saying those behaviors are wrong if indeed she did engage in all those activities? What are we basing it upon? If Donald Trump is really crazy, if Donald Trump is a, is really a sexual predator, if Donald Trump which we know he said it because it was recorded, you know, grabbing women by the genitals and, and kissing them and so forth. If, if Donald Trump is this playboy or was this playboy, if he's, you know, lied about the university, if he's failed to pay taxes, if he's not as wealthy as he says that he is and he's really leveraging his relationships in order to presume to have billions of dollars and if he's you know really just uncouth and has no regard for other people who aren't in, aren't in his position, if he's really a racist and all of these things, if all those things are true, which again it's potentially that, that all of them are true, upon what worldview are we basing those things to be wrong? Because again, secularism and secular humanism have no objective standards of right and wrong. It's basically each human decides for him or herself what is best. It's not objective. No human is transcendent. No human is transcendent. The mere fact that we're a human, it, it confines us from being transcendent. So there must be a transcendent being that has standards of right and wrong that are objective that we must compare human actions unto. But within secularism and within secular humanism, there are no such objective standards of morality and ethics. So who are we appealing to? I'm making a point that in our heart of hearts, the most secular and even the most quote unquote religious, we want objective standards of right and wrong. We want a transcendent standard that can, can adjudicate, that can provide justice to the behaviors of men and women. Because if we don't have that, ultimately we have chaos in society. Ultimately we have disarray in society, which is why you can look at, one person can look at a video and see a cop killing uh, an unarmed black person and say, you know what? Well, he deserved it or uh, we don't know what happened or whatever the scenario may be. And another person looking at that saying, hold on, this is obvious. 
This is obvious. This is murder. But again, upon what worldview do we appeal? We can appeal to secularism and we can appeal to secular humanism. What worldview do we appeal to? Ultimately, we have to appeal to a worldview where there is a transcendent being who has objective standards of human behavior that human behavior must be measured and compared unto. Then we look at situations and we and we can cry justice or injustice. But in a secular society, in a secular humanist society, justice is a farce. And I know people don't want to hear that, but it's a farce because ultimately the person sitting behind the bench has a philosophy or a worldview. Ultimately, the jurors have a philosophy and have a worldview. And these men and women can trump or adjust what is considered to be law based upon the particulars of that of that specific crime or situation. That's what we've seen as regard to the Supreme Court justice and the justices and the LGBT ruling. What were they basing it upon? A worldview. They weren't basing it upon uh, objective standards of right and wrong. They were basing it upon contemporary perspectives of what is right and wrong, not transcendent objectives that are unchanging. But let me move forward. I'm right at 16 and a half minutes. And I don't want this to be any longer than 30 minutes. As a matter of fact, because most of you probably aren't going to listen that long, but you need to check this out. Moving forward, moving forward. If we are brutally honest, for those of us who have actually studied uh, the political candidates, the persons most qualified didn't have a chance. <laughs> the DNC and Hillary Clinton, their camp made sure that they were going to back uh, blackball Bernie Sanders. I mean, that's evidentially pro uh, proven. That's true. We know that happened. But again, on the basis of what standard do we judge that to be right or wrong? Is it their standard? And obviously it was theirs because they did it. They felt that it was justified, legitimate. They hid it and so forth. Even when it came out, they made reasons and gave causes and so forth. But ultimately, it wasn't just a unilateral acceptance of responsibility. Moving forward, the Trump machine steamrolled and bullied everybody that was in the GOP race. I mean, the Trump machine steamrolled, bullied, spoke against. I mean, Donald Trump's quote unquote larger than life personality and his uncouth inability to, to communicate accurately, articulately, compassionately, clearly and so forth mismanaged relationships, mismanaged TV time, and even the GOP uh, debates were simply ridiculous. It was just Donald Trump's personality bullying the other candidates. I can remember watching one and uh, I think it was Dr. Benjamin Carson said, hey, can somebody please pick on me? Can somebody please talk about me? Call me a name so I can get in the fight. Again, complete ridiculous, completely ridiculous. If we are honest, we would have to admit that having an FBI and a CIA probe in one candidate, at minimum sexual harassment probes of the other, isn't what we truly want one day from an election. Does that make sense? But again, what worldview do we appeal to? Do we appeal to secularism to give us an answer? Do we appeal to secular humanism to give us an answer? Can't appeal to either one of them and not get an answer not a correct answer and a legitimate answer. Moving forward, if we're brutally honest, we have to acknowledge that Hillary Clinton has much more to lose in this election if she doesn't win the president. 
more than likely, we have to be honest, Hillary Clinton's political career will pop, will probably be over having lost to a first term black senator in 08 and now to an uncouth political amateur in 2016. Is it no wonder why her campaign has, listen, has raised over a billion dollars? Hillary Clinton's campaign has spent a billion dollars to defeat a, a political amateur who at best, who at best is crazy. Let's think about that for a second. You don't think they realize what she has to lose? You don't think the Clinton machine realizes what it has to lose? Yes, they have a lot to lose. Donald Trump. Donald Trump, if he doesn't win, let's think about this for a second. And this is, this is sort of a paradox. Think about this. If Donald Trump doesn't win, he will go back to making billions of dollars through real estate. <laughs> he will become an even much larger figure of life than he's ever been. And he's gonna sell millions of more copies of his past books and obviously the future books that he's gonna write. Here's what I'm saying. If we're looking at this equation from a logic, logic perspective, so let's start with loss, loss. If Hillary Clinton loses, more than likely her political career is over. If Donald Trump loses, his life only gets better. If Hillary Clinton wins, of course, her trajectory as being the first female president just launches her into the worldwide stratosphere of political achievement, as well as she is, she'll be in the pantheon of, of historical accomplishment for women if she wins. If Donald Trump wins, he becomes a much larger than life figure. And I mean, he's gonna make probably trillions of dollars through real estate and so forth after his political career is over. But here's what I'm saying. When you look at the loss-loss, win-win ratio, just by itself, it would tell us that in this race, Hillary Clinton has much, much, much more at stake. But moving forward, it's uh, 22 minutes, almost 23 minutes. I've got to wind this down. We've got to bring this plane to a land. Here's what we need to understand. That, now when I say immature, that sounds like I'm insulting. I'm really not endeavoring to be insulting because there are so many people with so many opinions and perspectives on this political landscape. Uh, it, it's immature, adolescence, and maturity. That's kind of how we're looking at it. Immature, adolescence, and, and, and maturity. Not, you know, uh, but anyway, not trying to be insulting. But moving forward, immature voting is when we vote for or against a personality. That's immature voting at the local level or the national level. If we're only voting for a person's personality, the one they have or the one they don't have, if we're voting for personality or against personality, if we're voting for gender or against gender, if we're voting for ethnicity or against ethnicity, then that's immature. That's an immature perspective of voting. But unfortunately, that's the most common perspective of voting. The most common perspective of voting, and let's use the national election, I cannot vote for Trump because Trump is, his personality is crazy. That's really an immature form of voting. Uh, I can't vote for Hillary because, because, you know, she's a liar. Well, there have been people who've lied before. Hillary Clinton, there'll be people who will lie afterwards, you know. But again, it's not about, well, Hillary Clinton has the chance to be the first female president. I'm voting for her as a woman in women's rights. This is a great victory for women across the country and around the world. That's an immature form of voting. Makes sense. 
Voting for personality, gender, or ethnicity is an immature form of voting. What's a, what's a mature form of voting? A mature form of voting is voting for an administration. Listen to me. It's voting for an administration because the administration of the president, whoever he or she may be after tomorrow night, will know. Whoever's administration is in place, that person's administration will substantially affect culture. Remember the beginning of this podcast, we talked about being at a cultural crossroads. Whoever is president, their administration will affect culture because a president will hire and appoint between five to seven thousand people uh, directly or indirectly when he or she takes office. When they're sworn in between five and seven thousand people will be appointed or hired through their administration. And those men and women, whoever are hired and whoever are appointed will affect culture and public policy. Uh, we have to follow the money trail. Mature voting follows the money trail. Who's giving major sums of money to a particular candidate? Who's giving major sums of money? Uh, these heavy hitters, uh, these people who who fundraise and raise you know tens of millions of dollars. I mean, who are they? What do they believe? What's their worldview? What is their agenda? What is their corporate agenda? What is their prison agenda? What is their social agenda? We have to ask ourselves these questions and do the research. In today's world, you have PACs, political action committees, you, committees. You have super PACs, super political action committees. You have bundlers. These are all um, at this point some criticized, but these are legal, legal ways of raising tens of millions of dollars to fund a candidate's administration. You have to understand what I'm saying here. I can go out and I can give, you know. X amount of money to a particular candidate. It's the large sums of money that you contributed or a person contributes to a campaign that affects that person's administration because no group of people, PAC, super PAC or bundlers, no one is giving all of this money to a candidate for them to turn around and then simply do as president what he or she wants to do. No, they raise this money, they contribute this money to affect policy in that person's administration. A vote for Trump is largely a vote for Trump's administration, which is largely determined by organized donors. A vote for Hillary is largely a vote for Clinton's administration, which is largely determined by organized voters. It's the media says if you vote for Trump, you're voting for a racist. If you if you vote for Trump, you're voting for a bigot. If you're voting for Trump, leave and go back to Africa, leave and go here, go to Canada or whatever. Ladies and gentlemen, that makes good, good public rhetoric. It sells magazines, it sells TV time, it, it sells advertising time, but that's not functionally true. And we know that's not functionally true. Any person who studied any degree of political theory know that that's not accurate. Not meaning it's not accurate what he, what he said and did, but I mean in terms of just because you vote for Trump and he said all of these things before he's president, it's not about what you say before you're president, it's about your administration who's wrote the, and who has written the checks to you. The same thing is true with Hillary Clinton. You better not vote for Hillary. Can't, can't vote for Hillary. She's a liar. She's a deceiver. Her and her husband have conspired to do X, Y, or Z. Well, it's not really about that. It's really about the people who are funding her at large levels because when she becomes president or if she becomes president, her administration will be largely affected by the people who bundled and raised tens of millions of dollars and even hundreds of millions of dollars cumulatively 
for her campaign. Now, certainly we want a candidate to be president who has character, who has ethics, who has morality. That's true. But remember, unless this candidate has refused to accept major PAC money, major super PAC money, and they refuse to allow people to bundle resources into their campaign with ideas and worldviews inconsistent with their own, unless they've made that decision, then their administration is going to be largely affected by those types of fundraisers. Does that make sense? So as, as much as we want to think that it is on the surface about their personality, it's, it's more about following the money following the money and they're looking at what do the people believe who contributed millions of dollars to Donald Trump? What do the people believe who contributed millions of dollars to Hillary Clinton? What do they believe? What are their philosophy? What's their worldview? What's their approach to life? Because that's going to by and large affect that president's administration. Let me use a very recent example, especially for those of you who are African-American listening to the Culture Shapers podcast. Consider President Obama. President Obama raised more money, I think $770 million in, in 08. Think about that. No, no presidential candidate in the history of America raised $770 million. And here we have a first-term senator from Chicago, if I remember correctly, who raised $770 million. I mean, inspired millions of black folks who never voted in a presidential election to vote. Millions of black folks who never gave any money to a presidential candidate gave money, $770 million. But let me ask you a question. Do we know about the bundlers for President Obama? We do know about the PACs and the super PACs for President Obama. Were not many black folks shocked at the fact that President Obama became such a champion of gay rights? and a champion of what he branded as marriage equality, those people who followed the money weren't surprised. People, the masses were surprised because the people who gave $5 or $10 or $20 or didn't give anything but voted, they were surprised. Like, hold on for a second, what's the president doing? But those of us who followed the money trail in 2008, we knew what was coming. Because we saw the bundling, we saw the PACs, we saw the, uh, the organizing of LGBT, the LGBT community, but celebrity profile, high profile people, Susie Orman, Ricky Martin, Neil Patrick Harris, Ellen DeGeneres, and so forth. I mean, coming together and raising tens of millions of dollars for President Obama. Now, do you think they did that for President Obama, for him to not endorse and or carry forth their agenda that they were the celebrity representatives of? Of course not. <laughs> of course not. Because his administration will be largely affected by the people who gave bundles of money through PACs, super PACs, and so forth. And again, I'm not hating on President Obama. There are many things that I disagree with, a few things that I agree with. But I'm just making a point to drive home what I'm saying to you regarding a president's administration is largely affected by the bundlers of resources and the PACs and the super PACs that contribute to their campaign because they don't raise that money for nothing. Christians, we have to ask ourselves a few questions. One, who does the secular humanist society endorse? Who does the American Humanist Association endorse? Who does the LGBT community endorse? 
Who does Planned Parenthood endorse? Who does the NRA endorse? And so forth. That's just a partial list. You want to look at the major organizations in America that affect culture. The NRA, the National uh, Rifle, Rifle Association, that affects culture. Planned Parenthood, that affects culture. American Humanist Association, that affects culture. The LGBT community, that affects culture. Hollywood, that affects culture. The music industry, that affects culture. The educational system, that affects culture. See, these entities affect culture, and each one of these entities have a political arm that raises money for a particular candidate. It's hard to decipher endorsements regarding issues of race and disparities and, and injustice. It's hard to do that because when we start looking at the organizations that uh, seek to address issues of race, more specifically black in the black community, uh, disparate treatment, uh, injustice and so forth. It's kind of hard to decipher that as a Christian because many of these organizations have been co-opted by the LGBTQ community. Which means that the LGBTQ community has postured themselves as being one and the same with issues of race. Now, I, I fundamentally disagree with that, but I am clearly saying that me as a black male in society or my wife as a black female in society, my children, black female, black male, their challenge and or historical issues and need for justice in society is not equal to the LGBTQ agenda it's not so it's hard to decipher that because so many of the especially like black lives matter which uh, does quote unquote some good work from my understanding regarding uh, culture and regarding uh, wanting to see black lives move to a place of prominence in society but there's some duplicity there duplicity on one hand the endorsement of the lgbtq agenda and then on the other hand completely ignoring planned parenthood I mean, that's duplicity. I mean, how do we say black lives matter outside the womb and then not at the same time assert that black lives matter inside the womb? Does that make sense? So, again, it's just kind of hard to decipher there. So here's the conclusion. Donald Trump is at best crazy <laughs> and at worst a tax evading social predator. But he can't be redeemed. Hillary Clinton is at best a very good liar. <laughs> And at worst, a public service criminal. But she can be redeemed. Now, I know there are people out there who don't like either of those statements. I understand that. You don't have to like them. I understand that. At this point, with nearly $2 billion having exchanged hands between these two campaigns, those matters are mute. I mean, it's really mute. If Hillary is a criminal, it's really mute. If Donald Trump is a tax evading uh, sexual predator, at this point, it's mute. We must follow the money trail and vote based upon which potential administration has taken large sums of money from groups, causes, and high-profile persons whose values and virtues are inconsistent or consistent with our own. At this point, that's really what matters. At this point, we must follow the money trail and vote based upon which Potential administration has taken large, large sums of money from groups, causes and high profile persons whose virtues and values are most consistent with ours. And when you do that research, look that up, then you make a decision based upon your conscience. 
And if your conscience just won't let you vote for Trump because of what he said and what he has done, if your conscience won't let you vote for Hillary because of what she has done or not done, you have to follow the money trail because when you vote your conscience, you're voting for an administration, not a person. There you have it. Right, wrong, or indifferent. But hopefully, something I said made you think. I'm Marcus Benjamin with the Culture Shapers Podcast. God bless you. Thank you for listening to the Culture Shapers Podcast. Take a moment and find out more about our ministry by visiting thedanielcenter.org. Remember, you and I are not called to be made by the culture, but to shape the culture with the influence of Jesus Christ.